What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. And this is our review of Knock at the Cabin. Hi there. Can I talk to you for a little bit? You have to come inside right now. There were four of them. What did we say? You shouldn't make things up when we're talking about... Can you open the door, please? They're breaking in! Fuck with you, baby. We're not here to hurt you, but you have to stay here in the cabin with us. Families throughout history have been chosen to make this decision. Your family must choose to willingly sacrifice one of the three of you to prevent the apocalypse. We're not sacrificing anyone. For every no you give us, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. It's really happening. Speedheart, close your eyes. Will you make a choice? You have to somehow trust us. We're normal people just like you. It doesn't matter. None of us believe you. We will never choose anyone. the rule is that no one's allowed to leave until you choose do you really think it's all just a coincidence i have to believe that my son is gonna die his name is charlie as a mother i am begging you you're the only one who can stop this andrew i saw something there was something in the light and i feel it now chance to decide the fate of everyone. Time's running out on the world. I'm scared. There is nothing more flawed and perfect in this world than our family. Please make a choice. Always together. Always together. I will ask for the last time. Will you make a choice? All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for a knock at the cabin, and the story is as follows. While vacationing at a remote cabin in the woods, a young girl and her parents are taken hostage by four armed strangers who demand they make an unthinkable choice to avert the apocalypse. Confused, scared, and with limited access to the outside world, the family must decide what they believe before all is lost. 
The film is starring Dave Bautista, Jonathan Groff, Ben Aldridge, Nikki Amuka Bird, Kristen Kiwi, Abby Quinn, and Rupert Grint. It is written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, co-written by Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Lauren Cohen. Hey, everyone. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Emma Sasek. You better let me in if I'm knocking at the cabin. What are you, like the big bad wolf or something? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, M. Night Shyamalan is back, everyone. Uh, You know, it's interesting because it's not like he's been gone or anything like that. But I always feel that every time he has a new film that comes out, there's always a reason and cause to celebrate because he's just such a unique voice out there. And I find that even when the films are failures to a certain degree, there's always still something very interesting going on there. Uh, He's not afraid to experiment and try new things. And even if those things don't sometimes work, I still always just find him to be a filmmaker that's very sincere uh, and can usually, when he's working within the thriller horror genre, be total command of the camera and how to craft a scene here. This is an adaptation from Night Shyamalan, which is still pretty rare in his career. He's only ever done adaptations twice before, um, and those two movies are actually probably regarded as two of his worst films to date, uh, that being The Last Airbender and After Earth. So with Knock at the Cabin, I remember watching the teaser trailer for this and being very intrigued by the central premise and the setup of everything. And then when I saw the full length trailer, I actually kind of, you know, half tuned it out because I didn't want to have more revealed to me. I wanted to save it for when the actual release came out. So that this way we could all properly experience the new M. Night Shyamalan film in all of its glory here. You got Dave Bautista, Jonathan Groff, Ben Aldridge, a bunch of others also uh, included here. So there's like a lot of excitement, not to mention it's being released at a time of the year where we don't get much competition in the marketplace. So films like this can really stand out. Uh, But as always, M. Night Shyamalan is provoking a divisive response from critics and audiences with his latest, Where Do We All Fall On It? We're going to try and keep the spoilers down. I think we can uh, save spoilers probably towards the end. I will make sure to mark where that is so that this way those who have not seen Knock at the Cabin yet, fear not. Uh, We will not be spoiling anything for you in our initial review here. So why don't we first uh, head on over to Emma Sasek. Emma, what did you think of Knock at the Cabin? Well, I'll just say that if you watch the trailer itself, you already have the entire film spoiled for you. So (laughs) there's no worries with that. But um, I thought you put it very well, Matt, in terms of even if you're not a fan of his films, there are definitely aspects of them that you can commend. Uh, Knock at the Cabin was that for me because I really can't say that I cared for it that much. Um, I thought that the performances were were definitely all solid from uh, the people who are doing the knocking at the cabin uh, and the people who do not want to allow the knockers into the cabin. Um, and I thought that there were a lot of really great shots done as well from like very tight frames on people's faces or like focusing on a certain aspect of, you know, their body to hint at like what might be coming next um, to just in general kind of capturing the the landscape, even though it's a very uh, closed off film for, for most of its runtime. Uh, I just felt that the story itself, like 
it just never really went anywhere for me. And I know that that's a silly thing to say, because there's definitely a, a journey that we go on in terms of uh, a decision that this family has to make. And every time that they refuse to make a decision, uh, one of the cabin knockers does something extreme. Um, I just don't know. I it, I just felt like it hit all the beats that I expected from the start and from what I saw in the trailer. Once we kind of got started in terms of uh, like the action that unfolds in this film, it just kept going. And I just never felt like there was anything, you know, anything creative like interjected in there or that it ever would stray away from the course that I thought it would go in. Um, now, maybe that's just me being used to an M. Night Shyamalan film being a little bit more creative with different choices and certainly certainly twists that he is known for putting into his films. Um, this one didn't didn't have that. It wasn't a regular M. Night Shyamalan film um, compared to the ones that I've seen before. And so that's why I was just kind of disappointed with this one in the end. But like I said, there are definitely some some very good filmmaking aspects here. But just overall, the story let me down. Yeah, isn't it? incredible that this movie is i'm trying to recall the last time m night Shyamalan did not have a twist ending mm -hmm. and everything that you see in this film is exactly what you get in a way that is the twist of knocking the cabin is that so. there is no twist <laughs> i would also really enjoy a little bit more explanation behind a lot of the events like getting an explanation for any of this would have also kind of satisfied me but it's just kind of there and happening and i mean i guess <laughs> well you ever been to sunday bible school I have not. Oh, well, that's all the explanation you would need. Well, I, su I suppose that that kind of does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Let's hear next from Lauren Cohen. Lauren, what did you think of Knock at the Cabin? All right, so I'm going to start by saying I am a huge M. Night fan. And uh, to your earlier kind of point, I'll say that I don't think M. Night has failures. M. Night has movies that don't entirely work, but I would never call an M. Night movie a failure because even when his movies don't stick the landing, they are more interesting than like 90% of other filmmakers working today. Um, I love him. I think that I there's plenty of his films that have not worked for me, but like I will for the rest of my life be excited for a new M. Night movie. And I also want to say that um, Old is also an adaptation, a loose adaptation, but it is an adaptation of a French graphic novel called Sandcastle. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So he is following up with another adaptation that wasn't an original M. Night story either, but when I was watching this movie, I was so smug the whole time. I was like, oh my God, this movie is amazing. Everyone is going to apologize to me for all the things, the bad things they've ever said about M. Night. Like, Team M. Night, we're back on top. Like, I was just, I was in heaven. And then the ending happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I was so in my own, like, self-congratulatory universe. I didn't make the movie, but I was just so happy and so, like, Smug, and then the ending happened, and that did not work for me at all. And I, I don't need everything to have a twist. I think M. Night has been put with the most massive unfair burden on him that he has to come up with these twists, which is never what he says he does. Just because The Sixth Sense did it does not mean that every movie he makes for the history of all the rest of his films have to do that. But it was more I didn't feel like I understood the point of the whole story at that. Like, I, I just was expecting something to kind of land emotionally, and 
because that didn't happen, I was just left feeling very, very cold and very frustrated because everything that came before it was so tense, was so well done. I mean, the framing, like I was just like swooning every time I saw a different shot. It was like that tight runtime and a time when movies are now always over three hours. This movie flew by. And I also say that like while the trailer does seem like it, it kind of put a lot out there and was a little spoilery. Uh, I didn't actually, I don't think the trailer showed the actual, like, um, told us what the moral quandary at the center is. And so when that happened, I was really, I was really intrigued. I love stories with like tough moral choices and what would, you know, impossible moral decisions. And I think that is such a good hook for a movie. And I, I loved the the question at its center. Um, but I don't think that the answer was at all satisfying or worked as a whole. I mean, it made the rest of the movie feel kind of unnecessary. So I did not love Knock at the Cabin. I still love M. Night. I love the filmmaking and I love a lot of the ideas. But as a whole, I don't think I would recommend it to most people. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Let's hear next from Josh Parham. Yeah, I have to say that I have very similar sentiments of what has been said so far. Uh, I think this movie, in the moment, I was very entertained by it. I could recognize some things that were sort of frustrating me with the story. I do think that the biggest thing that I, I take from it is that it did feel like it really struggled to arrive at a satisfying point to it all. And I don't necessarily need things to be like interconnected and have this big twists and revelations. Like I don't necessarily need that from one of Shyamalan's films, but I did want it to feel like it was actually like leading to something significant within its themes and the storytelling. And it just felt like it was sort of going through its plot point by plot point without ever really reaching to something that I found to be deeper. And that was very frustrating, especially when we get towards the conclusion and it felt very empty to me. But at the same time, there are moments in here that I think are really well done. I think this is once again another showcase of how great Shyamalan is as a director and how he's able to really create these very tense sequences in the film that feel very immersive from these characters' perspectives. And the performances are really good, too. And so in the moment, I did find myself enjoying it for the most part, even though I had frustrations with it. I have to admit, the more I think about the movie, the emptiness of the narrative does bother me more and more. And I do think I like it less as I kind of sit with the film. But in the moment, I did find myself leaning positive on it. It does have some good moments in it. It just unfortunately has this kind of hollow core to it that keeps it from being more engaging at the end of the day. Josh, I could not agree more when I watched this initially. I was like Lauren, kind of riding high. I thought that this was exciting. I was intrigued by the setup. I was so into the fact that there wasn't some bullshit, weird cinematography choices like there were on old. <laughs> I was <laughs> really, really enjoying this. The dialogue, you know, comes and goes in some places. Uh, there are a couple of moments where I think it's a little forced, but it never like went into cringy, awful territory for me. So. Consistently throughout this, I was really, really feeling this movie, truly. And even when it ended, I was like, okay, I feel like this was building up to something a little bit better and more significant, but I still enjoyed it. Then I got home 
and I had overheard that the ending to the movie was different than the book, and I was curious, and I looked up the ending to the book, and all of a sudden my heart completely sank because for the life of me, I do not understand why M. Night Shyamalan did not go with the original ending in the book. It boggles my mind because I think what he ended up going with instead, whether, and, 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 and you know, it, it could not have been put on him by the studio because as far as I'm aware, he has full creative control over his movies because I believe that he, I think he's self-financing a lot of his movies nowadays. I saw that online too, that either not just recently, but like that's kind of been a constant theme with him. Yeah. Yeah, it has. And I, I can't see M. Night being like, oh, I'm just going to change the ending of my my movie because like we said, M. Night's movies are kind of like the ending is kind of everything. Right. So I don't think he's just like swapping out. He He wouldn't do that, I don't think. So I think that this ending is something that he probably feels more personal about, I think. I can't help but think that we're kind of getting a bit of M. Night Shyamalan as a human being in terms of just his personal beliefs about religion, about humanity, and also his, in this case, uh, optimism for the future, considering how bleak and depressing the world is and how much we are pushing ourselves closer and closer to destruction. Um, and the movie, I think, does explore a lot of interesting questions here. Um, I think the central premise, the choice, this impossible choice that this family has to make for the good of humanity is so fascinating to explore. And I found myself, I'm sure like the rest of you, constantly questioning, what would I do in this situation? And I think for all of us, we don't really know for sure until we are faced with such a situation. But the situation itself is also so preposterous that it's like, there's a kind of a disassociation that comes along with that. Like, oh, well, this would never really happen. Like, this has got to be a dream or a nightmare. And then you're constantly questioning what is real, what is not, and so on and so forth. <sighs> so in the moment, I enjoyed it. But after it was over and the more that I've thought about it, it could have been so, so much better. And as is, I think it's definitely one of his more consistently stronger efforts in recent years. Um, I say this as somebody who was disappointed by Glass, disappointed by Old, uh, and I know these movies have their fans. I just haven't necessarily been one of them. I think I like this almost as much, if slightly less than Split, most recently, I would say. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, wow. This is like miles away from where I enjoyed Split. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, yeah, so I, I did some, I, I did that very similarly, like you, Matt. I checked to see, like, first I was like, am I understanding the ending? Like, there has to be more to this than just like what I saw. I did come across the original uh, written 
uh, ending and I read it and I was like, wow, that was so much more bleaker and darker and menacing than this. And um, I I think for dramatic purposes, uh, that ending is definitely a, I don't know, a Hollywood style ending, like the most crazy stuff that you could imagine happening with that. Um, but it definitely is a much more optimistic view, as you said, and um, maybe like this belief that maybe at the end, you know, at, when things really become bad, like that's when humans finally realize, oh, my God, we have to do something like we have to we have to save what we have. Um, so I, it does feel like it's a much more optimistic, grander viewpoint from him compared to. Some other ones, which were definitely dark as well, but I still kind of would have preferred to have seen maybe not necessarily everything that was in the original ending, but definitely some more uh, things pulled from it. Now, can we all agree, though, that the best aspect of this movie is Dave Bautista? Oh, my Mm. God, he is so good. Uh oh! I don't know if he gives the best performance, but I do think he's quite enjoyable. I just really like that you have this (laughs) big hulking... If I was a parent and I went to a parent-teacher conference and I saw that this was my second grade uh, son's <laughs> teacher, I would be like, holy shit. Um, I, I love the contrast. I love that he is just this complete badass who looks like he could snap you in half, and yet he is the most tender, sympathetic, cuddliest teddy bear who conveys a real sense of warmth and compassion through his performance here. One that I, you know, feel, listen, is it the greatest thing in the world? No, but like I've said on other reviews with this actor, I really feel that he is challenging himself and pushing himself. And I just admire that so, so much that he is willing to dig deep into the characters that he's playing and go outside of his comfort zone, unlike some other wrestlers turned actors (laughs) in recent years. Yeah, he's got a great presence to him, and it really is this interesting dichotomy of him possessing this very warm and inviting persona. Like, you do feel like every time he speaks, you are oddly comforted, but at the same time, he carries this menace, too, where you're also a bit afraid. And how he can balance those two within the character, I think, is a real testament to his abilities as an actor. I think that he gets let down by the writing as the movie goes along. And the more interesting aspects that you want explored with this character really aren't taken. And that is frustrating, but I don't blame Batista for that. I think his performance is, um, is very compelling from what's on the screen. No, I, I I do definitely enjoy it. I feel like among like all of the madness that is going on, he definitely keeps things grounded. And whenever you go back to him, you kind, I don't know, you just, you do feel that he is very much uh, in belief of everything that he is saying and that everybody else is saying, despite how impossible it all seems and improbable it all, it's all taking place. So he does have that great aspect of him where you just look at him and it's like the, the, the center, like you center yourself, you reset yourself, and then you may lose your way and your mind starts to wonder whether everything is correct as Jonathan Groff and Bell Aldridge's characters are uh, asking themselves and then you go back to Hadeev and you're like, Oh, okay. He is, he is telling the truth. He just, he just wants to play basketball with his kids. Now, one of the areas I think that the film fails in though is 
each one of the knockers, well, well I guess we'll call them the knockers right now, <laughs> until it's actually revealed what they are, what they really are. When we get to spoilers here, um, I felt that because of the way that the plot was structured, and this is a tight movie too, might might I add, a hundred minutes long. There's really not enough time to dive deeper into the other three characters. Uh, Batista gets the most material here out of the four of them. But like someone like Rupert Grint, uh, who, you know, I, I mean, t- listen, Harry Potter, Ron Weasley. Sure, I get it. Everyone is very familiar, but he's been phenomenal on a show called Servant over the last couple of years. Produced That's by a, Shyamalan. Yeah, yeah. an M. Night one. And I was very much looking forward to seeing what he was going to do here. He's in the film for less than 20 minutes, maybe 15. Yeah, this yeah. Uh, felt like a favor <laughs> of a role. Uh, right. You know, not <laughs> spoiling anything, but it definitely did feel like a can you just be in this movie for a little bit just as a favor and we'll have a good time shooting it. And yeah, I felt like him and most of the others that are in that group, like I think their performances are fine. But as you said, because of the runtime, while you could appreciate the brevity and pacing that this moves at, I do think we lose some of those finer details and we're given like the basic outlines of these characters but not really enough i felt to connect with their entire plot um and i felt that that was severely lacking in terms of me getting more invested in the overall story too yeah if you're like having to i don't know like they go about introducing themselves to this family and like just saying the most bare bones things about themselves. I, at the end of the day, I was like, so why? Like, I don't know. I just, just like, what do these people like to do? I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're posting up in my cabin and like doing crazy stuff to me, at least tell me about your hobbies, not just the most. Yeah, I'm, I'm a nurse. I care for people. Okay. Uh, I'm a mom. Okay, is there anything else? (laughs) Now, where the movie does hook me, though, and maybe this is because I grew up in a Catholic household, there is a definite religious element to this movie, and it's one of M. Night Shyamalan's uh, faith-based films, and this is what I was referring to earlier when I said that it, I think, very much communicates his worldview of how he sees um, the world through this religious lens. And while the film, you know, in its own way is... uh, sort of an allegory and then also too i think it's like a cautionary tale at times um there is some mixed and muddled messaging i think that gets kind of lost in this especially when you introduce the fact that uh the two lead characters of this movie uh eric and andrew are a gay couple and then you start thinking about the catholic christian church's uh views on the gay community and so that sort of gets wrapped up in its own weird entanglement but kind of stripping all of that aside and looking at it from a more universal theological uh, perspective, I started to really engage more so with the film's conundrum, if you will, the, like I said before, the impossible choice that needs to be made and kind of putting yourself in the character's shoes. I found that element to be engaging. And I also found this other element of what does it really mean to take a leap of faith to also be uh, rather compelling as well? So in that regard, I was very emotionally invested, but not so much in the characters, but more so in the plot and where the plot was going, if that makes sense. That right. Makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, but then those themes are so underdeveloped at the end of the day. And while I can be invested in the plot and like the actual sequence of events and where things are going and what's going to happen to these characters, in terms of what it all meant at the end of the day, I agree. It felt so muddled. It felt so empty. We got to the ending and it's like, it really is this feeling of, okay, but what was this all for? What are you actually trying to say? And I think the problem, as you had mentioned with this, with these protagonists being this gay couple, I think because the movie doesn't really have anything to say, you have to sort of fill in those gaps yourself. And I, I do think you can reach some troubling conclusions about what the messaging of the movie is. I should say that I don't feel like that is the intention of the film. I don't think it is actually saying anything like kind of actually problematic about the, the religiosity of these characters and, and kind of what these other people have to go through. But because the movie really isn't saying anything significant, it, it does allow you to kind of feel like, well, that's a little queasy maybe of what we're actually communicating here. And that is a definite problem with the narrative. There was a line, I think, I don't know if the character's name was Adrian, that she said something like, our choices are our destiny. Is that Was that the line or something to that effect, which felt like the kind of thesis statement he was making about like the, the theme of the movie. But that, even that, doesn't work for me with the end result. Then I, I kept thinking about that the whole time. And then the end came. I was like, yeah, but like, when, what what are you saying about our choices then? I, I don't know. It, I, I feel like I knew what the plot, like what his what his statement he was trying to make was. But what he was trying to say didn't jive with the events of the end of the film for me. I don't want to reveal too, too much here, but let's just say Ben Aldridge's character, Andrew. He has his mind pretty much made up about what he thinks the knockers intentions are, what their motivations are, what has brought them to the house today and how they are orchestrating the entire day's events. There's a part of me that is drawn to I like wishing that his version of events was actually really what was happening, because to me, that would have opened up a more grounded element and like kind of real world approach to these issues that then could have produced, I think, deeper conversation. But then <laughs> the other way it ends up going instead, you know, then you start entering into more faith based arguments. And because everyone comes from a different background and so on and so forth, like that, I think, makes it a little bit harder to crack. Like I said, I, I really feel that in a lot of ways, this movie is imprinted with M. Night Shyamalan's perspective of uh, the state of the world and how we are living our lives as human beings to the point that it almost feels like there is a disconnect here um, where, where it does ultimately, I think, though, connect with us comes down to some of its more universal messaging of parental love and also to obviously there are some really tight thrilling sequences in this movie too i mean there were some moments i'm not saying all of them necessarily but there were some moments where i was like what is going to happen holy shit he's going for that you know weapon ah uh, you know and i was really really tense you know throughout did you all feel similar or was it just not hooking you oh i felt similar for sure and i think that especially like in that first a moment when we get the home invasion of them trying to break into the house. Yeah, it's very tense and very well shot. And what I also really liked about a lot of these sequences was it felt 
rather grounded and authentic. It didn't really feel like these like struggles between these people felt like it was all that, you know, heavily choreographed and stylized. It felt like this is what it would be like if just regular people were breaking into a home and were fighting each other. It felt kind of sloppy like that. And I really did appreciate that aspect of it, that it felt as if this depiction was rather grounded and that actually made it even more tense and terrifying. Yeah, I agree. I also thought too, that we were going to start going into funny games territory. Cause I saw that this was rated R and I was like, <laughs> how fucked up are we about to get here? What is about to happen? Not at all. Right. Actually. Wasn't it very tense? Yeah, she's kind of surprised it was it's rated R. Like the most PG 13 R rated movie. And all honesty, like they said the word fuck like a couple of times. And I was like, wow, is that the worst thing that could happen? They don't, I, they don't really show the gruesome events that happen following the knockers with the knockers. Um, I also very similarly felt like more invested in like the action versus the actual story and where it was all leading to just because of the fact that there were some very, very good shots and tight framing, as I had mentioned, and um, just just a really good camera work following the people as they're running around or like trying to, you know, grab something from a car or like that's on a table, like all of that felt so well executed in my mind. I completely agree. Um, was there anyone we, you know, I, I, we mentioned Dave Batista as being a standout before. If he's not the standout, who is the standout? And also too, who stood out to you as the sore thumb of the group? I did really like Ben Aldridge here because, um, he, like you said, like he is the one who is trying to like explain himself out of the situation in terms of what they're, what they are telling him is so unreal and impossible to believe and then he makes a lot of very he makes really good points in it in that he's just like the things that they're showing on television at one point he's like it's not live this happened four hours ago i've been tracking this for weeks now like they just all are syncing up like their times and they keep looking at their times and i was like you know what he's got a point there's something that's not adding up here and that's why i also felt at one moment maybe it might lead to that type of conclusion as you uh, alluded to matt in terms of it not going the direction that we thought it would be going um so he was very fun and very attractive to look at yo i have it written down here as a note not gonna lie early eric banna vibes so handsome, my God. <laughs> I agree with uh, all those points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, his character is sort of almost the one who's like the audience surrogate of trying yeah. to figure out all of the rational explanations of what could possibly be happening and trying desperately to get out of the situation. And I think he handles all those emotions so well. Like, you really identify with what he's going through. He seems like also the one who is given weirdly the most backstory even though nobody really has that much backstory going on but i guess his character feels the most complete out of everybody and i think that helps his performance and when there's those moments of like desperation and wanting to fight his way out of this and also very scared for his family like you feel all of that and i think that's why it makes such a great impact and i do think between him and bautista they are the top of the cast here and I go back and forth, but yeah, Ben Aldridge is really, really good in this film. Yeah. And I also don't want to discount Jonathan Groff um, because I think he has uh, a difficult role in that the way he conveys his mental state and where his head's at and how he's processing the series of events, I think 
uh, could have been overblown or unbelievable, but it was just subtle enough that we, we as the audience see, and Ben, ben Aldridge's character sees a bit of a weakness and gets kind of protective over him in that sense. And I think that that's a lot of that is due to Jonathan Groff's kind of subtle performance. And he brings a lot of emotion to that as well. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his in general, but I do think he brought a lot to that role, which is less flashy than, than um, his partners. I agree that it's less flashy. My issue comes down to more so the screenwriting where I agree that he underplays it very well, but there was never a doubt in my mind ever about what that character's ultimate decision was going to be. It was, to me, a little too heavily uh, telegraphed, and it never strayed away from that. Like, there was never an inkling of doubt in my mind, and I found that to be actually rather disappointing because by the time we got to the end of the film, everything just kind of played out exactly as I expected it would, and that was very disappointing then in retrospect because I kept then thinking about ways that he could have played that character with even more ambiguity to throw me off. But I don't think it's necessarily his fault. I more so laid at the feet of uh, Shyamalan and the screenwriters more so than anything. That was just the biggest disappointment for me in general with this film. There just seemed to be no, like, no divergence from where you felt the film would be going in terms of what the characters would be doing, what their thoughts might be, except with Jonathan Groff's character at one point. But even that toward the end, I was like, all right, I guess we'll just carry on with all of this. Um, it just felt like it was just on one road the entire time. And it's just one straight road out of the cabin, out of the forest. And you just keep going out of there. <laughs> in terms of um, sore thumb of the cast, I guess it has to be Rupert Grint because of the fact that there's just so little material there. His American accent is garbage. And everybody came for Emma Watson and Little Women. And I'm going to come for Rupert Grint here because at one point he just did not even bother to try with his quote unquote <laughs> Boston accent, which sounds straight out of Westminster or wherever he may be from. And also too, like Abby Quinn, I appreciated what they were trying to go for here with her character. But I don't know if it's just, I think she's like in her mid twenties as is, but she just has like this face that just screams, girl, you look like you just got out of college. I don't know if you're a seasoned mom, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I will say though, that I think maybe I am judging those characters against similar types that are in other Shyamalan movies. And I know what the, really atrocious versions of those characters are like with the really, really bad dialogue that actors can't pull off. And that's fair. And I, and I guess maybe in that comparison, I'm a little bit kinder to them here because I was bracing for like when they came up and were about to give their speeches about like the little bit of backstory that they do have to the cup, the, the family that's tied up. I was like ready for, okay, this is going to be the really awkward Shyamalan dialogue. And it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. <laughs> and, and maybe because of that, I'm a little kinder to the performances here because I know how bad it can be in other films. So I thought they did fine with what they were given, but again, what they were given was not very much, wasn't very nuanced. And when you're not playing an interesting character, that does ultimately hinder your performance too. I liked Nikki Amuka Bird uh, quite a bit here. I wish she had a little bit more to do, just a little bit, uh, because she's given definitely uh, a bit more than the other two that I mentioned. 
Uh, not as much as Dave, but at the same time, there was, to me, I felt like there was room for her arc to hit even harder. And I don't think that the character work was strong enough to ever get us there. Because it felt like they were trying to make it land harder. And it, Right? Did you get a sense of that? Yeah, she's got some complexities in uh, to her that I think are missing from other people. She's kind of struggling with the decisions that she's making. And that was intriguing. I do think that as the movie progresses, they really don't resolve it in a satisfying way. And, and that again, leads to a lot of my frustrations with the storytelling. But yeah, I did think that she did a good job of what she was given. I agree that I wish that the movie was more interested in kind of prodding all of these characters a little bit more and actually kind of took some time to to deal with that instead of just sort of zipping right through to get it, you know, to 100 minutes. And did your audience cheer when M. Night Shyamalan made his cameo? <laughs> yeah, they did. I love his cameos. I do. I, I mean, even when they're cringy, I just love that whenever he shows up and the audience has that recognition, like it's basically like the Hitchcock cameos of today. And I love that we don't really get that anymore. And like I said, even when they are cringy as hell, I love when his face pops up and there's the the notice of recognition from the audience. And it's like, yeah, that I think that's fun. I, I thought this one was very clever. And I, I do funny. love that people recognize M. Night because I do think it is rare for people to know what directors look like. Mm -hmm. There's not that many directors that people have like a, a visual that they connect with them. And like M. Night Shyamalan is one of those people that like, he's walking down the street. I think a lot of people know know him. When, when, he's, when you're seeing one of his movies and he has a cameo, everyone recognizes him. And I, I love that because he's just, you know, no matter no matter how much shit people give him, like they they keep going back to M Night. Yeah, that that is true. As much as this guy has burned bridges with me in the past, uh, there has been some brickwork laid to uh, build those bridges back up again. And I find myself constantly uh, walking along them to get to the other side and thinking that I will eventually see another Sixth Sense or another Signs. Hell, um, Unbreakable. I think on a rewatch recently, especially like might even be his best movie in my opinion it is yeah that's my number one way more than the sixth sense which i also love but i think unbreakable is somehow underrated and i've even found myself like over time you know giving a pass more so to the village because i was very critical of it the first time i saw it and today i've responded a lot differently to it so in a in a lot of ways his filmography has always constantly shifted for me um i don't think i'll ever change my feelings on movies like lady in the water and the happening and last airbender but no that the village is the worst to me i'll never i'll never uh come around to that one. Oh, bummer bummer uh well hey you know that's that's the beauty of it though everyone's got their own different opinions on him the way that he handles his stories his characters uh there's a lot of feelings uh, about how he chooses to end his movies so mm -hmm. why don't we actually like at this point maybe dive a little bit deeper into that here let's talk about Finally. the ending the reveal let's get into spoiler territory uh, with Knock at the Cabin. So if you have not seen the movie quite yet, uh, please, this is where you probably should turn off. Uh, let's dive a little bit deeper here. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, we get the reveal. And granted, this was sort of in the trailer. Uh, but we get the reveal that the knockers are basically the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they represent... I think I got this correctly here. Healing, guidance, nurturing, and malice? Yes. Was the last one? Yeah. Sorry, I'm having trouble reading my own notes here. Um, and the choice that is presented before Eric and Andrew to sacrifice either one of themselves or their daughter, their adoptive daughter, turns out to actually be real. And preventing the apocalypse and all the events that are happening with each time they say no and there's a new plague that descends upon humanity, the film kind of wants you to question whether or not if it's real or not. We find out by the end that it actually is all real. And once the four horsemen have all off themselves or killed themselves or been killed by others in their own way, it's basically left up then to Eric and Andrew with a few minutes remaining before the end of the world to make a final choice. And by this point, Jonathan Groff, Eric has undergone some sort of a enlightenment character arc journey to where he recognizes that this is what they need to do. And he is willing to sacrifice himself so that his daughter has a better life moving forward, a full, wonderful life with her father. It's meant to be this very emotional moment. And it did not ring a hundred percent true for me in the moment but i was still willing to go with it because i was waiting to see just where this was all going to lead to and the movie ends with andrew and when singing boogie shoes in the car driving off into the sunset and <laughs> i have to admit like i was very mixed on it leaving the theater but then when I read what actually happened in the 2019 uh, novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, afterwards, I was like, that should have been the real fucking ending to this movie right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I for me, the also, you just mentioned the boogie shoes thing. Um, if we had to have this ending, which I see no reason why we would have to have this ending because it's the wrong ending, is I would have, I, I spoke about this with a friend, the ending would have landed so much better if it ended on Boogie Shoes instead of um, the score kicking back in because it's it's Boogie Shoes and then we have the score. And I think that was such a kind of more upsetting, kind of darker kind of note. And what I really wanted from this movie is, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie The Mist. Oh, yeah. But that's the ending I would have loved, which if, if this had to go this way, okay, he chooses to sacrifice himself, whatever, whatever, to then have that real ambiguity, at least, of like, was this all real? Did me killing him save humanity? Or finding out that it absolutely did not save humanity and was meaningless. That's the kind of note that I would have totally loved for it to end on. At least, like, that would have been the quote-unquote twist that would have done it for me. But it was also surface value, like, face value, surface value. Like, it was just, it was just, it was what it was. I agree completely that, you know, if you want to borrow some elements of the book, yeah, okay, fine. Don't kill when by accident, which is what happens in the book. There's like the scuffle with Leonard. The gun accidentally goes off. The child gets shot. I mean, I really, really think that this would have been one of the most memorable, most talked about uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies probably ever if they had gone with something like that. And then 
you have the two um the t- the two men at the end either you can go with your version lauren where they one of them does willingly decide to kill the other and then it's left ambiguous and one of them is just left completely alone or you don't have them kill each other. The end of the world happens and then we're kind of left in question as to, well, what now? And that's where you leave the audience. I, I think any of these would have been better than this cookie cutter feel good. I really don't know what M. Night Shyamalan was thinking ending. Yeah, I think that what I really wanted was a sense of ambiguity. Like, I completely understand why they didn't kill the kid in the movie. Like, I, I understand why they decided to, to to do that. And yes, it would have been more interesting, but at the end of the day, this is still trying to reach a very wide set of people. And I can understand why that change was implemented. I mean, that's why, that's why I questioned earlier, like, do you think Universal Pictures, like somebody with a suit and tie said, yo, Shyamalan, you, you can't, you can't do this. We won't be able to sell this movie. Or maybe like the dad filmmaker doesn't want to kill the kid. There could be that. That's too. what I was thinking. Like, yeah. But but at the end of the day, I think that's not what really frustrates me about where the movie ends up. What it's more so is that we get to the end and it's just so plainly stated of, yep, that that was it. That was the decision. You needed to yeah. make a sacrifice and or the world would end. And it's like there's nothing else really going on here. Like you could have this actually really interesting commentary about religion and faith and what you have to kind of put into that. And while that is a bit of a retread of some of the other stuff that Shyamalan has done, it still is a fascinating topic and you could explore it in really interesting ways. But the way that the movie chooses to end with, yeah, the sacrifice and the world just stops ending. It's like, well, but Okay, so then what is the point to this, though? Because otherwise, this is just a very straightforward story being told with no real deeper meaning to it. And I just found that to be just so I was so angry at the end of the movie because it just felt like we didn't really arrive at any interesting point to it all. And I was so disappointed. Like when I was watching it, I was like this. I know all of this based off of the trailer like the trailer, I'm pretty sure the trailer also says that like they're the four horsemen. Like I when even when that was stated, I was like, oh, I feel like I already knew that based on like whatever I saw before. But just at any point, I was like, is there going to be something different that happens here that isn't already plainly stated in the trailer that just reveals everything at the end of the day? And that never happened. And then yeah, you get to the end and it all just plays out as it was supposed to play out. And then you're just left wondering, like, well, why? Why? How? Why? Why? Why these four random people? Which, I mean, I guess they say, like, it was all random. We all got some visions. And it's like, but huh? Why? Like, why is this all just somehow making sense in this universe? (laughs) I mean, I really think that it just boils down to a very simplistic viewpoint, which is hey, people, we need to make some sacrifices if we are going to save the environment. And I and then there was that, um, I suppose so. Um, and then there was the conversation like toward the end where Jonathan Groff's character is like, I suppose families have been making this decision like all the time. And I was just like, what is going on right now? <laughs> yeah, because that's like implied, right? That this whole four horsemen of the apocalypse visiting uh randomly chosen family to make this decision and that's what's going to keep the world going it's like you're telling me that however thousands millions whatever you want to assume you know the life of the planet is like years that this has been going on and nobody has fucked it up yet (laughs) 
(laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, well, who did not sacrifice themselves the last three and a half years due to COVID-19? Like, (laughs) somebody explained that to me. Yeah, there was a lot in this that the more I thought about it afterwards, I got increasingly more frustrated. Like I said, in the moment, watching it coming out of the theater, instant reaction, I was like, oh, man, that was that was a good time. Like, I, I actually... I think that with M. Night Shyamalan and Josh, I agree with what you were saying earlier compared to his other films. I was just glad that this was passable at times. And maybe because we are now in February at the time I was watching this in January, you know, you think the quality of films that come out around this time of year and, you know, your expectations are just so super low to the point that anything that is even considered passable, especially when you, sorry, Lauren, I, I, I think he's had some real stinkers in his career here. Uh, <laughs> just by comparison, I was like, oh, man, Knock at the Cabin is a resounding success. <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right. I'm going to ask the question now. Josh. What would you have done? Uh, I mean, I've <laughs> I was gonna say, I very much identify with uh, what Ben Aldridge is going through, and I would pick his perspective not for the other obvious reasons that I would pick Ben Aldridge's perspective. But I do feel like when you're in that kind of a situation, you want to find the most rational explanation possible. And I I do think that that is probably why that character feels the strongest and why people just from my sort of impression kind of identify with what he's going through. So yeah, I would be very resistant to just killing the person I love just because four strangers came in and broke into my house. Yeah, it would take some real convincing. I have to agree because, you know, he says, I think at one point, I I, like, I'm going to say no again and again and again, even if that means ending the world hundreds of times over, like, you're not going to convince me to kill somebody that I love just because you tell me that the world is going to end. And it's funny because I think we say (laughs) stuff like this all the time to people, like in terms of just being hyperbolic and such, uh, whenever we're trying to convey like extreme conviction in some of our decision making, we'll say, yeah, like even if the world was ending, I would never, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But here they actually are faced with that dilemma. And yet the thing that they have to overcome is, well, do I choose to believe that that is really what's happening or not? If you were 100% convinced and the answer was yes, no, truly, this really is going to happen. Sacrifice one to save the rest of all. There are a lot of people, at least I know, just due to unconditional love would say, you know, I can't I can't bring myself to do that. And, you know, as a result, uh, you know, maybe the maybe the entire world does deserve then to burn as a result of that. I don't know. It's this is the part of the movie that I found to be the most fascinating overall. Emma, what about you? Like, what would you decide to do? And, you know, would it change for you if you knew with 100 percent certainty that the outcome was real? I mean, it would definitely be like, I mean, if in the beginning you're faced with like people breaking into your house, definitely it's a panic scenario. And then they tell you all of this and you're just like, what are you like? At this point, you're just like, honestly, just kill me. Like, I know you're here to kill me. <laughs> just get it over it. I don't need this whole shebang show showmanship right now. Um, but I guess like, yeah, as we go along, I feel like at the beginning, I probably w- would be very resistant and not 
believing in their, uh, you know, ideas. And if they were showing me things on TV, I would use my epidemiology background in terms of my health reporting to be like, sir, that's a virus. It spreads. (laughs) That's literally what a virus is supposed to do. Um, But then if I'm seeing like things falling out of the sky, then I'd be like, well, shit, guys, I guess we're out of luck. We got to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it would would definitely would be a lot to have to ask any single person to do, but I think at the end of the day, I would, I would definitely believe it. And I would probably be somebody who would have to make a choice. Lauren, how about you? I don't know. The whole time I was watching it, I was like Ben Aldridge. I was like, fine. And let the fucking world end. <laughs> like that was, that was me the whole movie. I mean, obviously no one knows what they would actually do in the situation, but as I was watching it, I was like, man, I mean, it seems like humanity is coming to an end as it is. So like, I don't I don't believe that the world is hinging on my decision. I, you know, I, I also think that 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 was the thing is like I could believe in the moment of the characters that the apocalypse was happening. I just wouldn't believe that me making the decision was what would stop it. So I think I was I wouldn't make a decision. Yeah, I think I would take an approach of, well, we're all fucked anyway, either today, tomorrow, years from now. You know, I, I'm not I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I don't need the burden of the world on my back. No, not only that, but like I'm not going to kill someone that I love. Just not. Same. Yeah. You don't have to kill someone you love. You can just you can sacrifice yourself. No, because you can't kill yourself. Oh, that's right, too. Yeah. That's oh, the important can't? part. You can't kill. Her. That was a major rule in the movie was you can't kill yourself. If you can kill yourself, this is all relatively easy. The whole point was you have to decide to kill someone else you know, one of your other three family members. No, you can't. can't. He, he convinced his partner to kill him. He like sacrificed himself by saying like, I'm okay with it. Let it be me who dies. I still feel like if you are like saying like, you know what? I will sacrifice myself. I should be able to just do it myself. Like I feel like. (laughs) I know, but apparently the rules, apparently the the end of time rules are very strict in this universe. (laughs) Also what I would have liked, and this was, I mean, this is a lot darker and more fucked up, I guess, but like, what I wanted to see was more of a like decision-making process. Like when, and the two dads being like, well, who's it going to be? The way it was done was so under duress. We, we needed to call Be- uh, Ben Wishaw into the room to jot down. Yeah, exactly. Like I want to be writing out cons. things. I want it to be a real decision. And this was, it, this was done in like, almost like it was like a spontaneous call. And the daughter wasn't involved at all. And the fact that Jonathan Groff all of a sudden had these like, visions and stuff that that kind of made it I want to say easier and I didn't love that aspect I wanted the choice to be as hard as it really is and it when, the way they did it didn't feel like that when I said I would make a choice that was I would sacrifice myself <laughs> I would kill myself however that's apparently not allowed here so <laughs> I'm not going that I would like to say that I would not feel comfortable and I could never harm somebody that I love. So sorry, M. Night Shyamalan. It looks like everything is falling apart once again. Did you guys um, actually see somebody in the mirror as Eric claims that he did when he, you know, saw the light? Or did we just see a light and there actually wasn't anybody there? Because I was trying to think back. I don't think any of us have seen this movie twice. But do any of you remember actually seeing a figure standing in the mirror? I don't remember. I really wasn't looking out for it. Yeah. And I mean, 
again, that's another element that if they had played more with it and that kind of ambiguity, I would have been more invested. I, I also think I remember hearing that in the book, that character that Jonathan Groff plays, uh, Eric, that he is more religious, like his background. I think he is Catholic and that is something that they do mention. And so that his willingness to believe in and what's going on would have felt a little bit more stronger with him and having that be at odds with his partner would have been a really more interesting dynamic to explore. You don't really get that. And I think that's why everything with that character feels a little half baked to me. But if we had explored that more, I think that would have been certainly a fascinating foundation to build up these characters from. But as is, like, yeah, I didn't remember seeing this figure there. And there's no, like, we don't get a flashback to something that would have informed us more about that situation. And it was just another element that felt very underdeveloped in terms of us getting a stronger connection to the overall theme and character development here. I really wish they had used these flashbacks of their relationship to better build to the sacrifice. Yeah. I also would have really appreciated to get a little bit more insight about the four people who show up at the cabin as well. Like all of the flashbacks are just related to this couple, which is fine. I guess I kind of would have enjoyed seeing like these four people like getting these visions that they're seeing or just better understanding parts of their lives. As we said, like a lot of them, we don't know anything except like the most cookie cutter version of themselves. And I feel like with the flashbacks, we could have at least seen like, I don't know, their life or as they started getting these visions or as they're like seeing all of these like strange things popping up in their minds like that would have been very intriguing for me just to understand like oh it's actually real what they are saying like this is all happening to them versus just you know just going off based on their word and them saying that they met up on like a reddit post and stuff like that (laughs) i mean they uh the idea of show don't tell i think if you would have devoted Anywhere from five to ten minutes just showing a single scene, maybe in the lead up to the visions for each one of them. But within those few minutes, it distills exactly what kind of person that character is. And if you had been able to weave those into the story instead of them simply telling the characters, oh, this is my occupation. This is what who I was before this. I think that would have been a lot more effective. But. I also recognize that it probably would have added another 15, 20 minutes to the runtime. So Sure. I guess we technically get to see Rupert Grint's character inter- interwoven with one of those. I thought that was going to lead to something so much more I significant. Too. I really yeah. did, too. Like, once they, like, put two and two together with there, I was like, oh, oh, maybe it is, like, what Ben's character is thinking this entire time. And right. then, no. Oh, it's just, again, just another part of like, no, it's all real, but it doesn't have a connection to it. It, I don't know. (laughs) Yep. There's one thing I know for sure. Ben Aldridge's character, Andrew, after that bar attack, he says that he underwent some major years of therapy following uh, that attack from Rupert Grint's character. Uh, When is going to need a shit ton of therapy following this whole ordeal? (laughs) Because... What a traumatic series of events to watch as a child. <laughs> can you like, can you guys just put the child in a different room? Like as you're doing this weird <laughs> ritual, like you do not need to like, I, I would shit myself as a human 
adult, let alone a like what eight year old, nine year old little girl. My God, they're they're like saying she's gonna have this full wholesome life, and then there's that flash forward to her with Ben Aldridge at the end, and I'm like, nah, there's no version of this where that girl is not mentally fucked up for the rest of her life. <laughs> I'm sorry. He looks like a wonderful, loving father, but even that type of father would not save me from the terrors and the nightmares that I would have from this. And also, yeah, we lost our we lost our father slash husband uh, because of this. <laughs> Yay. OK, final thoughts. Great out of 10 for Knock at the Cabin. Josh Parm. I think the only other thing that I would mention is uh, I would shout out the score to the film. I thought it did a really good job of emphasizing a lot of those moments of tension. It had this bombacity to it, but still didn't ever feel like overwhelming to me and felt very well suited to the overall theme and tone of the film. So that was one of the craft elements I did actually really like in, in the movie. And I did want to shout the score out. Okay, nice. Lauren Cohen, how about you? Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Um, a lot I liked about it. It's, you know, like I said, very well shot. Great performances all around. So much tension. Such a tight runtime. Very well edited. Like, I have nothing but good things to say about it. And then the end comes. And I mean, I still I still think people would have something to gain by watching it. It's just, um, you know, the whole thing ended up feeling meaningless in the end to me. And I stressed myself out for no reason is what it felt like. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, still very interesting, still has a lot of the M. Night touch that I love and still still a worthy, I guess, movie to watch if you were intrigued by the trailer. But I don't think it worked all together in the end. OK, Emma Sasek. Um, I guess I'll just reiterate the fact that there are some really good performances being done here. Um it does raise a very interesting question in terms of what you would do if you were put in this situation. I just wish that I didn't know so much of this story going into it based on the trailer. And I wish that there was a little bit more, um, I don't know, just a little bit more creativity nuance with this film uh, throughout it. Um, but I will also kind of give a shout out. I know it's just basically based in one location, but that cabin, like... It went from like such a beautiful, tranquil spot in the first few minutes to like the most hostile hostage situation possible. And um, I thought that the production design was was very good. And the way that the camera interacted with all of its different corners and elements also stood out to me. And Dave Bautista is a tank. The man got shot in the arm and just did not flinch <laughs> and i feel like that would be real <laughs> uh, man yeah i gotta say in terms of like dave batista there's a scene where m night Shyamalan wants us to believe that he could have snuck out of a window at one point oh god yeah <laughs> and i'm looking at the size of this window and i'm like have you seen dave batista there ain't no way there's no way that's some winnie the pooh you know, getting stuck in the whole shit. <laughs> Only Wynn could get out of that window as Seriously. like a literal single digit year old child. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, I want to give a shout out, uh, just like Josh did, to a technical element of this movie. Uh, Jaron Balashke, uh, who was the cinematographer for Robert Eggers, shot all three of his feature films here. And... I read that they used uh, older lenses, lenses from the 1990s, and I think it shows in a lot of uh, a lot of instances here. I think this is actually one of M. Night Shyamalan's uh, better shot films in quite some time. Uh, the one that actually like stands out to me the most is 
Batista's introduction scene with Wynn uh, in mm-hmm. the field and um, just the tight close-ups on his face with the Dutch camera angle. Really, really great choice just to kind of show you how off-putting he is, uh, not to mention, you know, just the fact that he's a stranger talking to a child. It's got this foreboding quality to it, despite the fact that he seems to be uh, very caring and soft-spoken and, you know, very mannered, and they're talking about catching grasshoppers, but yet you just know something's off, and I really, really appreciated that quality to it. Yeah, I did really like the cinematography, too, and especially comparing it to Old, which is some of the most baffling cinematography that I've ever seen in a major movie. This one, yeah, even those moments where, like you said, those Dutch angles where it can be so easy for those to look very ridiculous and pull you out the movie. It was actually implemented well here, and I felt the cinematography overall in this film captured the mood and tone exceptionally well, and and I did appreciate that a lot. And as my final note here, uh, no, two final notes. Um, I, I always appreciate seeing the old Universal logo. Yes, yeah. Any old movie studio logo, whenever that pops up, that's always a joy. And uh, shout out to Kiki's Delivery Service. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Can't believe Dave Bautista has not seen that film. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Dave Bautista in real life has seen that film. I bet he has, but uh, Leonard has not. <laughs> I, I also wonder, too, if that was like an improvised line. Like if there's like other takes of him saying like other <laughs> types of movies. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Uh, overall, I enjoyed this. I recognize that it's flawed. I engaged more with the themes of the film and the questions of it and whether that's because of my religious upbringing or something else i don't really know but at the same time i was very much let down by the ending even more so after i found out what we could have gotten but yet i'm still going to lean a little positive on it because you know the bad dialogue wasn't necessarily there like there are a few moments where i was like oh boy we're we're teetering but it never quite got into that territory for me. I don't think any single performance is actively awful. Uh, like Josh said, there were no baffling cinematography choices. I- I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Um, it's a it's a recommendation, but like a light one. I don't think you necessarily have to rush out to the theater to see it. But at the same time, I would say that, um, you know, in the overall canon of M. Night Shyamalan, this is not one of his disasters or, as I said earlier, failures. Sorry, Lauren. What about you, though? What grade would you give it? Apology accepted. Um, <laughs> I give it. Um, I've been thinking about this entire podcast. I've been thinking about that. Um, I'm going to say a five out of ten. But even even when I say a five out of ten, like I still think it's worth watching. It's just really like the air was like sucked out of me with that with that ending it just didn't work and I also do want to note that I think the flashbacks didn't work totally either because I don't think they led up to something very meaningful for me so yeah five five out of ten it's like a a a misfire but uh an accomplished misfire okay interesting Emma how about you I'm also at a five out of ten um definitely some things that worked really well with this film but also some things that needed a bit of improvement in the long run all right and Josh Parham I am going to land at a 6 out of 10. I am very mixed on it. I did have enough fun with it in the moment that it does lean me positive. But yeah, there's still a lot of problems with the storytelling. And as I said up front, the more I think about the movie, the less I do end up kind of liking it. But there was enough in the moment that I was entertained by to lean me in the slight positive direction. But it is a very flawed film at the end of the day. 
this is going to be like one of those films that when I look back on the year, I'll probably say to myself, wow, which film had the most amount of diminishing returns the longer its runtime went on? <laughs> because in the beginning of this, I was so invested and I was so intrigued by the central uh, mystery of it all. And the uh, setup was really tense and thrilling. But as it just kept going and going and going, and then by the time you get to the reveal, oh, man. So for that reason, in terms of any Oscar potential, uh, this will not be bringing M. Night Shyamalan back to the Academy Awards. I I'm even like getting to a point now where I'm starting to wonder, do you think he will ever have an Oscar nominated film again like The Sixth Sense? Or do you think that that's just a product of its time and there's just no no way? No, it's not going to happen. I actually even feel like The Sixth Sense was kind of a fluke. You know, not that that movie is like bad or anything and people, you know, that he got lucky. But I think that movie was just a specific phenomenon when it came out. And it really just wrapped itself in the culture in a way that was very unique. And I just don't think that his type of storytelling is really going to be invited back to the Oscars anytime soon. I, I kind of feel like it was just a one and done thing for him. He makes interesting movies that people do want to see, and that's a success. But in terms of Oscar prospects, I kind of don't really see it happening again. And I do think a lot of that has to do for me. Do you guys remember that that famous magazine cover? I think it was Newsweek where it was M. Night Shyamalan on the cover and it said the next Spielberg. Oh, yep. God. That was right after The Sixth Sense came out. And I think that like, it's not that M. Night couldn't make a movie that would be worthy of an Oscar and that would be beloved. It's that his name has been dragged through the mud so much. People have turned on him to such a degree. People feel like even when he does well, I don't think people are willing to give him that full 100% Oscar level credit. I just think that there's, there's sign of like this kind of like aura around him that just I can't see ever lifting to allow him to be nominated at that capacity. But I mean, I hope I'm wrong. It's a shame because he did give us the iconic line. We have to get off of this beach. <laughs> with the iconic <laughs> delivery. <laughs> There's something wrong with this beach. <laughs> I can't. So good. Oh, my God. It's like that movie. Thank you for reminding me of that, Emma. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> All right. With that said, Josh Parham, where can they find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at J.R. Parham. Lauren Cohen. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Cohen Film. And Emma Sasek. You can find me on Twitter at Emma underscore Sasek and Letterboxd and Instagram at Emma Sasek. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.